Welcome, everyone. You're in for a brand new episode of HCI's special edition podcast series, Nine to Thrive, a Deep Dive, in this next hour, where we spend a little bit more time discussing a critical problem or notable trend in strategic HR. My name is Aubrey Witte, and I'm thrilled to be your host today. I encourage you to grab your cup of coffee or tea, put on your thinking caps as we venture into the land of assessments. Um, today, and we are going to be talking with a few different notable people um, on our podcast. But the first I'd like to call out is my colleague, uh, Jenna Filipkowski, who is an IO psychologist by training and also our vice president of research. Jenna, welcome. Thanks, Aubrey. So today, what we're going to do with our hour is actually spend some time talking to a couple different people, a, a team rather, of IO psychologists from two different organizations, Shaker Consulting Group and Caterpillar, as we dive into what are talent assessments, how do we even use them, why are they necessary, why are they good, why are they bad, uh, what do you think about as we you know, kind of go into this topic in more depth. Um, and let me kind of kick off, Jenna, with you have a background in IO psychology. So before we kind of move over from to hear from Shaker Consulting Group and Caterpillar, um, what do you think is the importance of this topic? Yeah, so I'm sure you're all aware of IO Psychology's industrial organizational psychologist, and we are trained in the science of workplaces. And one of our training is to how to develop and use assessments and make sure these assessments are reliable, valid, and um, have a purpose within the talent um, life cycle. Mm -hmm. So my goal with these interviews was to just kind of introduce the listener and kind of be like an assessment 101 to understand how assessments are used, what are some of the legal requirements, what are um, some trends and technologies that we see to kind of give everyone a primer about what, how assessments can help organizations today. Yeah, and I think that talent assessments um, kind of suffer from the same thing that data and analytics do, which is it's kind of analysis paralysis. People hear the words and they think, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing, so I'm just not even going to move. I'm not going to take any steps forward. Um, so we're trying to kind of reveal the fact that it's not that complex when you think about it, but there are certain things that you need to consider as you um, embark on actually using assessments and that there's really valuable data that you can get from assessments, especially if they're done in a routine way. And I just also want to call the fact that IO psychologists are the ones who are trained to, so you just don't want to do a BuzzFeed quiz with your <laughs> new hires. It, you want a trained professional, someone who understands the psychometrics and understands the legal um, requirements for these type of tests because if they're using selection you need to be cognizant of that. Mm -hmm. So we reached out to some IO psychologists to kind of understand the assessment 101 space and everything you need to know when you're considering talent assessments for your organization. So I'd like to welcome our first guest from Shaker, Allison Carr and Dan Koletsky. Welcome guys. Thanks. Great to be here Jenna. Yeah absolutely. Thanks for having us. So my first question is, it's kind of a long-winded opener, but we see the trend for HR practitioners to be more data savvy and increasingly use data analytics to make decisions around people. So who to hire, who to promote. And cognitive ability tests and job knowledge tests have been around for a while, and we know that they are predictive of job performance. So for our listeners who are at the beginning of their data analysis journey, what do HR professionals need to know about assessments and predictive analytics to get started? Yeah, this is a, a great question, a loaded question, and it can be uh, it can be a little intimidating getting started. There's definitely a lot out there 
as far as using big data and predictive analytics in the HR space and specifically in the selection of employees. But at its core, um, you know, it's really still all about measuring what you want to find out about individuals in a deliberate way that allows you to differentiate. And what's important, and I think sometimes uh, maybe overlooked, especially as we're talking about the selection of employees, is the importance of understanding the data that you're using to predict performance. So whether it's one job relevant and two, whether it's actually predictive of performance. And some of the most common selection tools used that I'm sure uh, many folks are familiar with are um, unstructured interviews and resumes. And when you look at the data, uh, and there's over a century worth of research on this, they really aren't too predictive. Um, some of the tests that you mentioned, cognitive ability, job knowledge tests, those can be, those can be good tools, but definitely not the only types of measurements that are out there. Um, interactive simulations, personality, bio data are just a few others. And what we do, and, and kind of by using this multi-method measurement, so using multiple measures combined, you can take more of a whole person approach. And so you really increase the available data points you have on an individual, and thus you increase your ability to, to do effective predictive modeling. So it can all start to sound uh, a little fancy, but for those getting started on their journey, it's really about determining if an assessment is job relevant. Um, and to do that, um, we want to make sure that an assessment is based on job analysis, which is studying and understanding the demands of the job and really designing assessment content meant to measure those demands and determining if it predicts. So asking potentially a test developer, um, you know, does that test developer have expertise in psychometric measurement and test development? There's really lots of shiny new tools out there. Um, they don't all necessarily have the research and science behind them yet. And it's easy to start to float into areas where you're using more random data or data that's not job relevant to predict, and that can start to present some problems. So essentially asking if the assessment is fair and valid is a really good place to start when you're talking assessments and predictive analytics. Very good. And diving a little further into that, so how do we know an assessment works? How do we know that it predicts performance, behavior, or a skill we want to measure? What, are the, what should we be looking for to know that it's valid? Yeah, so this question is obviously something that is really important to the organizations that are using assessments. Um, the question of whether a test predicts behavior, skills, um, or aspects of performance that we want to predict, um, we would say that a test that does those things is valid. Uh, and the process of determining that the assessment works is then called validation. Uh, and so this process of validation really involves uh, first gathering two pieces of evidence so first, you want to collect information about the candidate's performance on the assessment. Um, and then you also want to collect data that speaks to how individuals um, performed once they were hired into the role. So once you have this data that speaks to performance on both the assessment and on the job, um, we use statistics to assess whether there is a real meaningful relationship between those two things. So if an assessment does predict performance, it would be considered to be valid. Now, although it's really critical to establish validity um, from a statistical perspective, validation is really only telling us about the effectiveness of the assessment from kind of a scientific perspective. Because these tools are being used by organizations, it's also really important to demonstrate um, that an assessment has a positive impact on the organization's bottom line. 
So there are a number of different kind of downstream effects that are commonly used, um, commonly evaluated when a workforce is hired um, using a well-designed assessment. So Dan is going to talk more about ROI in a minute, so I won't get into that. Um, but just as an example, you know, we often see lower attrition rates. We see improvements in time to proficiency for new hires. Um, these are the sorts of improvements that you see when you have a large proportion of your hires um, stepping into a role already having the skills they need to succeed because an assessment measured and allowed recruiters to screen for those skills. So while these sorts of things are a little bit different than the statistical calculations we use for the validation process, um, demonstrating how the assessment is working for the business is really an equally important part of establishing its credibility. So to kind of loop back around and answer your question about how we know whether an assessment is working, the answer is really twofold. So there's that first piece, which is the statistical evidence linking the assessment and job performance. And then there's the second piece, which is really demonstrating how the assessment is working to improve the organization's human capital and to positively impact their bottom line. Very good. Thanks for that very detailed explanation. The IO psychologist in me is very, very happy to hear all those that evidence being presented. <laughs> um, so my next question, thinking about the investment in time and money in doing this process, um, what's the ROI of using an assessment for hiring and for development? Yeah, so this is uh, another great question. It's it's really going to be, you know, somewhat unique for each assessment and organization, so that's kind of the, the disclaimer. But, you know, that being said, there are a lot of different reasons to use an assessment for both hiring and development. And the ROI can be substantial, whether you're looking at, you know, dollars, um, performance impact, turnover impact, uh, perception of the organization, and the candidate experience. So, um, you know, there's lots of new research coming out on the impact of the candidate experience and really thinking about your candidates as potential customers and whether they would refer others to the organization. So having engaging assessments that effectively communicate with your candidates can really be an effective tool to aid in that effort. And when we start to think and talk about the actual kind of ROI figures that we typically see, um, you know, from an administrative standpoint, you know, we've seen anywhere from 25 to 30% less effort and time in candidate flow management. So having your recruiters really focus their efforts on better fit candidates for the job, so there can be returns there in terms of efficiencies in your process. Um, using effective assessments can reduce uh, attrition by 25 to 50% or more by really helping to identify uh, those most likely to turn over. So that can be substantial ROI monetarily uh, in dollars and resources saved when you think about the cost of onboarding and training and, and, and things like that. Um, also, you can see lifts in productivity and time to proficiency. So we've seen anywhere from 20 to 125% increases on those types of metrics by using effective assessments. And we can measure and document differences in performance between top and bottom performers uh, and what that translates to in dollars. So those are more kind of ROI, potential ROI figures from a hiring perspective, but for development as well, um, providing new hires with strengths and opportunities based on assessment results allows you to create more robust developmental plans. And ultimately that can lead to 
faster time to proficiency, decreased turnover, things of that nature. So really lots of reasons to invest the time and money in using uh, effective assessments. Ultimately, you know, the more effort that's put into ensuring you're measuring what you intend to measure and the more thorough your validation approach, the greater likelihood you'll have a strong ROI at your organization. And in terms, you mentioned earlier um, that there's a lot on the market and there's sometimes that they're not very predictive or they're not very useful um, in terms of an assessment. So in terms of creating an assessment, I've assumed it's a lot of back-end work. And I know it's a lot of back-end work because I used to do it um, previously to join HCI. But walk me through the process of creating an assessment for a company or for a role. Yeah, absolutely. So um, sort of I think as you alluded to here, uh, theoretically, anybody can create something that they call an assessment. Um, but developing a really valid, fair assessment um, is sort of another question. So uh, to create a valid assessment, you need to understand first how to conduct a correct job analysis. So that is how to break the job down into its component knowledge, skills, abilities, um, and other important pieces. Uh, these are called KSAOs, and they're used to build a profile of the job. Once you have a real understanding of what the role entails, the next step then is to leverage this information you have collected to develop test content that reliably taps into each candidate's relevant KSAOs. So as an example, um, if the ability to close a sale is really important for a particular role, you um, might write a test item that describes a sales scenario and asks the candidate to pick from one of several responses about how to best make a sale. The caveat here, of course, is that creating an assessment, um, creating a good assessment, involves way more than just writing content that seems like it should go along with the job. Um, after the assessment is developed, it must then be validated, um, which can be obviously a time and resource intensive process. Uh, I touched on what validation was a few minutes ago, so I'll sort of leave it at that. Um, but in addition to being valid, a good assessment is also reliable. Reliability means that a test will produce the same results kind of time over time if a person were to um, take it repeatedly. And then Beyond reliability, validity, and other kind of psychometric properties, there are also some legal defensibility considerations when you're creating an assessment. Um, the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, uh, they legally define criteria that need to be met to demonstrate that a test meets federal guidelines in terms of fairness to protected groups, um, which include you know, ethnic minority groups, candidates over 40, that sort of thing. Um, so to loop back around to the original question of who creates assessments, uh, typically um, the best prepared group to develop assessments are going to be industrial organizational psychologists um, because we do have special training in statistics, job analysis, um, legal guidelines, uh, the development of sound psychometric tools, demonstrating ROI, that sort of thing. Um, but really the guidelines um, set forth for assessment creation are available for anybody to use. So anyone with a background in statistics can be well on their way to knowing how to develop a good test if they were to sit and read through and really understand the EEOC's uniform guidelines um, and other documents like PSYOPs principles for validation and use of personnel selection procedures. 
Great. And as we wrap up, I'm interested in some trends and innovations in the Italian assessment arena that our listeners should be aware of. What's out there? What's, what's new? What's fresh? Yeah, so it's definitely uh, an exciting time in the talent assessment arena now. Um, as far as trends, there's there are many. Um, I'll I'll speak to one of them, and then I'll have Allison speak to uh, a couple that she's seeing as well. But a lot of our clients are really interested in mobile assessment and gamification, and with more and more candidates using mobile phones as their primary device to access the internet and apply to jobs how can we as assessment providers meet the candidates where they are and really continue to provide an engaging experience that still allows us to get the data we need to then accurately predict performance on the job. So as we've discussed throughout um, today, it's really important not to lose sight of job relevance, uh, again, while still creating that fun and engaging candidate experience um, that's also the same regardless of device. So uh, it really presents um, some interesting challenges for us from a developmental standpoint uh, in terms of content, um, but it's a great challenge and one that has um, definitely kept us on our toes. Yeah, and then uh, kind of building on what Dan said, uh, gamification is another big trend in the assessment space right now. Um, what gamification is, is essentially the use of game-like simulations that are designed specifically to measure job-relevant KSAOs. So an example of this, um, you know, we recently worked with um, a retail role that required stocking shelves and kind of checking products in storage. And we developed a short game-like exercise that required applicants to move specific products from one place on the screen to another um, according to a specific set of rules, uh, very similarly to the way that they would move merchandise in a store if they were hired. So in that sense, we were able to give candidates um, a realistic preview of what it would actually be like to perform the job. But even more than that, the exercise was incredibly measurement rich from an assessment perspective. We were able to measure things like how quickly an applicant completes the assignment, how accurate they are in checking product numbers and filling orders, um, how well they follow stocking rules. These things are all KSAOs and they're all highly job relevant. So a lot of this gamification is um, really, really cool stuff. Um, and then if I had to pick one more thing that us assessment nerds are all abuzz about, it would probably be big data. Um, we see that we are getting consistently larger and larger data sets that contain really huge amounts of information. These big, rich data sets have so much potential to help us revolutionize how well we can predict human performance on the job. Um, particularly when we consider them in conjunction with some advanced statistical techniques that are coming about um, like machine learning um, and others. So yeah, if I had to pick you know, three big trends in the space that listeners might be interested in checking out, um, I think that the mobile optimization, the gamification, and big data are all really interesting topics. That is very, very interesting. And from one data and assessment nerd to another, thank you so much both for being on this very insightful podcast. I appreciate it. Of course, yeah. It was great to be here. Thanks, Jenna. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dan and Allison. This has been a great conversation just to hear a little bit more about how assessments are pieced together, You know what the building blocks are and what are the things we need to keep in mind as we want to sit down and, and actually want to create some of these assessments um, in-house. 
So we're gonna switch gears a little bit and change our conversation. I'm gonna turn it over to Jenna to introduce our next guest from Caterpillar. Thanks, Aubrey. We now have Keith Lees, a data scientist at Caterpillar. Welcome to the podcast, Keith. Good morning. So this Nine to Thrive podcast series um, episode is about talent assessments. And I know you're an IO psychologist. So in your words, what is the purpose and goal of talent assessments? So really the purpose for any kind of talent assessment is to provide information on the people that you're looking at. And that information can really be used across any part of the employment life cycle. So when you're hiring somebody, when you're bringing them through onboarding, when you're promoting, when you're developing them, I mean, really anytime you need information, you can turn to assessments as a possible avenue. And then can you give a little more detail? You mentioned using them for hiring versus using them for onboarding or development. How are they used in practice? So typically the use is a little bit different um, depending on whether it's hiring or development. So for the hiring stream of work, uh, typically we're looking for the best of the best out of any potential candidates you may be um, interested in pursuing for a given job. So on the development side, typically you're looking a little bit more at where the uh, that individual's weaknesses are and what you can do to potentially improve those. So really, it's the, a lot of times the same kind of assessment. It's just the focus shifts a little bit. And if it's for hiring, are the results of those assessments typically shared with the candidate, or is it something that you would just have in your back pocket and save? Uh, that would typically vary a little bit. Um, so it just kind of depends on the culture of your particular workplace. Um, some companies are a little bit more conservative in that vein, so they may be less willing to share. Others may um, be a little bit more open. Um, there are legal concerns that would be relevant there, so it just depends on how open that given company is to assuming any kind of legal risk if somebody questions the results. And in terms of using assessments, are there any other applications you've seen besides for hiring and development? Those are probably the two biggest ones, but I mean, you can also use them for succession planning potentially. Um, you may want to look at those if you're in a situation where your company is having to downsize, so terminating and offboarding individuals. Um, you can also think about the performance management process so that uh, performance review is really another type of assessment. So our audience is HR practitioners, and if they're considering different types of assessment vendors, what should they be aware of and on the lookout for when they're evaluating their options? So really there's a few different points that they should look into. First is to evaluate what that vendor is offering in terms of their assessment library. So are they offering a broad array of different options you can choose from, or do they have only one or a few different types of assessments? And really you need to be careful about what those assessments are intended to be used for. So um, not every assessment can be used for every purpose. Some are designed specifically more towards recruiting. Some may be more focused on development and not suitable for recruiting purposes. Um, some may be able to do both, but they, Oftentimes, when that's the case, they have different types of reporting there. Um, in addition to that, you really want to look into 
things such as do they have experts that can support you? So do they have IO psychologists such as myself that could really field any kind of questions that may come up with the assessment process? Um, you may also want to look into um, technology capabilities. So if you have an HR platform that you store all your information, can uh, that vendor provide some sort of integration into your platform? So um, a convenient way to store the results of any assessments if they're computer-based, for example. And then finally, I'd recommend that you look into what kind of legal support can be offered. So um, if there's any kind of legal concerns raised about your assessment practices, um, do they offer any kind of help to uh, guide you in that process how to navigate that? And then that's a good transition to my next question in terms of the EEOC and legal requirements that are part of testing and talent selection. So what do we need to know as HR practitioners about the legal legal guidelines surrounding assessments? So typically the these guidelines stem from uh, various laws such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and there's several other laws that are kind of in a similar vein. Uh, typically they all are um, there in place to uh, make sure that there's no um, adverse impact or discrimination in the process based on gender, race, age, medical conditions, and um, basically any other kind of protected group, which varies from law to law, um, whenever you're making any kind of employment-related decisions. So that could include hiring, but may also be related to promotions, demotions, pay changes, and terminations. And... So when you're looking at different assessments to choose from, obviously you want to be aware of, are they meeting the legal guidelines and requirements and to make sure that you're con continuously monitoring for adverse impact in those protected groups. So the EEOC is going to look for something known as the four-fifths rule violations. Um, so that's basically where for any time you hire a percentage of candidates out of your majority group, you want to hire at least 80% of that ratio out of your minority group. So say for a position you had 100 male candidates and 50 female candidates, um, if you hire all 100% of that male candidate population, so um, 100 out of 100, you would want to hire at least 80% of the female applicants as well, or 40 out of 50 in this case. Um, Otherwise, if you're hiring less than that, you are committing what's known as disparate impact, which is a sign that maybe there's some form of discrimination going on, which could trigger further legal investigations. Great. Thanks for clarifying that. And I have another question in terms of when you're evaluating different vendors. Like I know a lot of different types of assessments either measure personality or they measure competencies or they measure skills or knowledge. How do you know which type of assessment is best for that position? It's really going to vary from position to position. So um, a lot of vendors will kind of focus more on personality and cognitive ability measures. So typically cognitive ability tends to be one of our best predictors out there, but there's also a chance for discrimination in that against um, certain subgroups. The other type that I mentioned there is personality, which um, tends to be a little bit less predictive, but it um, tends to be a little bit less discriminatory against those subgroups as well. 
Um, so typically we tend to look at combinations of those um, just because they are more generalized and can be applied to a broad number of different jobs. Uh, when you get into things such as knowledge and skill tests, uh, the challenge there is whether or not you need somebody who already knows what they're doing in that particular position versus whether you're going to train them to uh, learn how to do that job. So, for example, if you need somebody who knows how to do accounting, you should probably have somebody who can at least uh, show like a certification in the area or degree, but you may want to offer some sort of test just to make sure they really know what they're talking about. Um, but then again, if you're looking at somebody who's taking a more entry-level job where they really wouldn't have any reason to know anything about that job before they take it, um, you may be uh, causing some grief when you're actually trying to hire candidates if they wouldn't understand the job, but you're going to train them to do it anyway. Interesting. And in terms of like my, my final question, I'm interested in the trends and talent assessment that you're witnessing. What should, what are, what's new? What's, what's developing in terms of things that aren't just the standard personality test? What are some new innovations in talent assessments? So I really see that technology is playing a bigger role in assessment in a few different areas. So first, for a few years, we've been seeing that uh, there's a lot of transition to online testing offerings. So they tend to be a little bit faster. They tend to be less labor intensive to administer. Um, particularly right now, I see a lot of shift towards mobile friendly solutions in that area. So a lot of people no longer have a personal computer. They tend to use their phones or they may have a tablet. So uh, making those solutions friendly for those platforms is one trend that I really see. Um, another trend that I see is an interest in social media and algorithms. So the kind of uh, big data influence on assessments. So um, really, you may have heard stories about how companies are starting to mine websites like LinkedIn or Facebook for information about the people they may be potentially interested in. Um, there's some concerns about how effective some of those platforms are over others. So the verdict about how well they work is kind of still out there, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, as far as the algorithm side, so this tends to stem more in terms of uh, turning over to a computer to try to figure out who's the best candidates to move forward with. Um, there's a lot of interest with the EEOC in particular on this right now because it's kind of a black box decision that's being made by these computer algorithms. So um, companies really need to be aware of what they are putting into those algorithms and what kind of decisions are being made to make sure that there's no kind of discrimination going on. And finally, the biggest trend with technology I'm seeing is uh, something known as gamification of assessments. So basically turning the assessment into a game, um, which may be a little bit more motivating for people to take uh, play a game than take a test. Um, but there's not a whole lot of information and feedback yet on how effective they are. And even if they are job relevant assessments, um, that motivational boost from the gaming of the assessment probably isn't going to be true for the actual job itself. So um, you may be setting people up to think it's going to be very fun when it may be a very boring job when they use that gamification piece of it. 
That's interesting, but it can be useful in terms of giving a realistic job preview of what the role might be like as long as the gamification of the role and assessment is realistic and not overly exciting when the job isn't so much so. Right. So, I mean, if it's really a simulation of the job itself that's not really artificial in terms of what you're doing, then that's fine. Um, if you're getting to slay a dragon when you fill out a report, that's probably not going to happen in the uh, real job itself, one would assume. So it's probably not going to be as job relevant there and maybe not as realistic. So are you saying there's no jobs for slaying dragons currently available out there? <laughs> if there is, I haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> you don't really hear about those jobs too much, but I, I'm not going to say that they're not out there. I <laughs> haven't heard about it. That's great. Well, thanks so much, Keith, for your insights today. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to all of our guests today, Dan, Allison, and Keith, for taking the time to join us to talk about the importance of assessments, things that we need to consider as we build them, how they can be applied to the talent life cycle, and kind of the trends in the future as we look forward to it using assessments. It's a really important topic. We hear about it a lot, and I'm glad to be able to kind of dig into the details today with all of you. Thank you. I'd also like to thank all of our HCI learners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll subscribe to our 9 to Thrive HR podcast if you haven't already on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Smart Radio, or our YouTube channel, HCI Talent, for instant access to new episodes. As always, if you're interested in learning more about what HCI is working on, what we're hearing about, and exploring new topics and trends in strategic talent management, please visit us at www.hci.org.